0: OK, I think we should start up. Let me um, welcome all of you to this um, public roundtable organized by LSE Ideas, the LSE's new Center for International Affairs. My name is Arne Westard. I'm going to try my very best at chairing this panel. It won't be an easy joke, because we have four very distinguished experts here who all we want to have their say. And I hope we will benefit as a result of that, not just the speakers, but also the audience. Um, Um, China, in terms of its international affairs, have been very much influenced by what has been happening this year. Um, I'm thinking of course primarily about the Olympics and the effects that the Olympics had within China and on China's relations with the world, and we're going to spend some time discussing that um, this evening. But of course, there are also much wider issues at stake here. Um, What will the effects be of the current financial crisis? Uh, for China, particularly if it turns in, as I think most people believe now, into a global global depression. Um, There are also a number of changes that have been happening more slowly within China itself, many cases brought about by various forms of domestic events, the earthquake in Sichuan, um, the um, um, events in Tibet, and a number of issues that are ongoing. And of course, there are the big uncertainties about um, Chinese international affairs, dealing with the Taiwan issue, uh, dealing with the Korea issue, the issue of the two Koreas, the relationship to Japan, and perhaps in the minds of Chinese policymakers, most important of all, the relationship to the United States when a new American president takes over. So there are a number of issues that really puts a focus on Chinese choices, on Chinese decision-making uh, at the end of 2008 and the beginning of 2009, and that was really the reason why we wanted to do this round table now. And we have four very distinguished speakers, um, as I said, who will uh, guide us through this evening and discuss the topics that we will be focusing on. Uh, to my immediate left, Martin Jakes, um, who is a fellow at the Asia Research Centre, and now a fellow of LSE Ideas. Uh, Martin is a uh, columnist for the Guardian. He's written widely about East Asia, about East Asian international affairs, about globalisation, about a number of number of other topics. Professor Chen Jian, most of you will know, the Philip Roman Professor at LSE uh, this year, from Cornell University, where he is professor of Sino-American relations and one of the most distinguished experts in the United States on the relations between the United States and China and on Chinese foreign policy in history and today. Next to Professor Chen, we have uh, Jonathan Fenby. Um, Jonathan is best known, I think, as an editor of The Observer, editor of South China Morning Post. also one of the most prolific and best informed authors that I know of on a wide range of issues which now also in in two terrific books includes China his uh well-known biography of Chiang Kai-shek and most recently the penguin history of modern China which I would really recommend to all of you it's a it's a real tour de force and we congratulate you Jonathan on its very recent uh publication um, and last but not least, Attar Hussein, also well-known at the LSE, the Director of the Asia Research Center and one of the world's leading experts on Chinese development issues. So that's our panel here tonight. We will try to set off some time uh, at the end for questions from the audience. We'll start with some questions from me to the panel up here, <coughs> and then we will bring the audience in for, for discussion. And I'd like to start with um, Professor Chen. And asking you a question, Chen about how the Olympics changed China. Do you think that the Olympics really changed the country? Are there issues there that we need to be aware of now that one can see it in, in hindsight?
1: And uh, uh, Professor Westhardt, you always ask me very, very difficult but too part, to the point questions and that is why Professor Westhard. and in case you don't know because he has introduced all of us but not himself <laughs> he, is, <laughs> he is I knew there was something I
0: forgot <laughs>
1: and also and he has been known for many many things and one thing is that he knows how to ask a question yes I think the Olympics has changed China in many many senses and generally for the better that's Want to say, but that uh, that's good news, but um, it's a complicated uh, thing um, to say and to describe because um, the Olympics occurred in, in 2008, and um, the Olympic Games Beijing in Beijing uh, isn't, was supposed to be the central event. However, the centrality of the games, as we all know. Um, is uh, marginalized, is lost in the whole uh, network of complicated development in 2008 for China and for the world to begin with. I was in uh, Beijing in late January, and Beijing was fine, but uh, at the same time, the entire central and southern part of China was paralyzed by the uh, storm, ice storm, and as if that was not enough and then in March, of course, the Tibetan turmoil and then the international responses to it, especially in Europe and the Games torch rally have been such, made such a political you know, event and has uh, made a stage of expression of all kinds of different kinds of opinions and personally I was involved in, in a very um, interesting and also memorable event at Cornell University to discuss Tibet and other things and the games and then the great earthquake of the 21st century and probably one of the biggest in human history and China the entire country was really shocked by it and even for those areas which were not directly influenced by the shock and then in June the a great flooding and finally, in that context, the uh, the games. And as if this is not enough, in the wake of it, now we are facing this global financial crisis. And all of the, the the games must be put into the context yeah. of this set of event. And I think it has changed China for the better, largely because of two reasons. First of all, this is a moment, the Chinese moment, on the global stage. It has really uh, put together a, a great exhibition of Chineseness and if we, 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 we watch the opening ceremony. And also it also has uh, uh, demonstrated to the world to what extent the magnificent splendor of Chinese culture and history has been uh, brought to the central stage of modernity. And so some of the best, uh, aspect of China was demonstrated to the old world and why this is important that is simply because we must remember what has been the very foundation of the uh, legitimacy of not just the Chinese communist state but I will say more than China really is related to the statement Mao Zedong made at the time of the People's Republic of China's establishment that we the Chinese people have stood up this is important. A China that knelt down in front of the world is not the China that is beneficial to the world. This is China, which was a, um, a, a land of crisis, wars, famines and revolutions. A China that is a st- s- that has stood up in the final analysis is good news for the entire world. So that's important. And secondly, let me be very brief, this finally helped China to further enter the international community to become an insider of the international communi- community and also to become a state ho- stakeholder in, 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 the, in, in the existing international si- uh, system. Let me just stop here because of course there are many other aspects. Good news is always accompanied with um, other kinds of news, mm. and that this is a process that is still unfolding. Mm.
0: Martin, could I could I ask the same question of you? I mean, in terms of the changes, and also to reflect a little bit on what, what Chen Jian said. If you put the year, I mean, the full year 2008, including the Olympics, into into perspective.
2: Um, well, I agree very much with what uh, Chen Jian said. Um, I think that um, this actually. What I think uh, in another sense it represented was the moment when China, as it's been reborn since nineteen seventy eight um, interacted with uh world popular consciousness and through essentially through television and uh, uh and in a very direct way, not mediated in the same way as normal and of course it was a highly accessible event because the Olympic Games is a highly accessible event but I think the thing one has to add to that is the, uh, as you say, is the opening and closing ceremonies uh, which made an extraordinary impact and um, and w- w- in a way was a, a, well, what it was was a, a, an attempt to convey China culture and history to the, the global population. Uh, I was in Malaysia at the time um, and you know Everyone was talking about it, and I assume that was being repeated um, all over the world. So this was a, this was, I think, from virtually any point of view, uh, the Olympic Games was a great success for China. I mean, you know, there was all sorts of um, uh, uh, doubts and um, being expressed beforehand uh, from from West in particular um, about uh, the pollution. Um, about protests, human rights, and so on. But in, in fact, I think that on almost every almost every uh, uh, criterion, um, the the games was a great success. Um, of course, not. I mean, I I read an interesting piece which um, compared the 1908 London Games, which was the first time Britain held the Olympic Games at, at, at its sort of colonial peak. Uh, with uh, the Beijing Olympics Uh, the the 1908 Games was the first one ever uh, to um, have its own uh, bespoke stadium for an Olympic Games and it was the way in which London wanted to show the world Britain wanted to show the world you know And they won 56 goals, and America won 23. So that, in a way, shows you the times. Um, And uh, and the the way the Chinese presented themselves, the world was, you know, I think that their their, their centerpiece, the Bird's Nest, was, you know, a magnificent building, which was both uh, beautiful, but also for its size, strangely intimate. And I think that was, in in its way, an aesthetic, a, a particular aesthetic success. Of course, the question is, well, how. What will be the longer term effect uh, of 2008 and the Olympics? And I think that the thing that's um, actually going to um, define that, uh, probably more than the Olympics, um, is the impact of the global recession. Um, Because clearly that is unleashing um, forces, trends, movements, ideologies. I mean, God knows what, actually, in the longer run. Um, which will in some which definitely you find some major new moment in post 1945 history and which will have very big repercussions for China but we're not quite sure what they'll be at the moment um, clearly they're going to first of all impact on the United States they're going to impact on the American Chinese relationship but they're also going to impact on China but we don't know exactly how much because it depends how the growth rate in China is
0: affected, Jonathan, if I I could turn to you um, with a slightly different question. Um, How do you think this looks as of now from the Chinese leadership's perspective? Uh, Because one of the issues here uh, that has been much discussed, as you know, after the Olympics, is not just the impact that this has in a global sense and the impact it has on images and, and understanding of China, but also what the Chinese leadership think that they have gotten out of this I mean if you look at the Olympics and if you look at the year as a whole I mean what we saw before the Olympics I think was a very nervous leadership I mean a leadership that was very very preoccupied with all the things that could go wrong how does this look today
3: um, if I could just make one small remark sure. really coming off of I mean obviously as both of you have said the, the opening and closing ceremonies had an enormous effect and were watched around the world I mean um, we at my office I had to because we don't have a television set. We must be the only office in London without a television set. (coughs) Everybody from the China desk had to come to my home to watch it, and so on, so work stopped for the day, Um, which is absolutely true. And it was a tremendous effect, which leaves London with something of a problem in four years' time, I think. But it was very interesting in the historical thing, and this, in a sense, links in with the stand-up thing, that the, the pageant of Chinese history stopped around probably the middle Ming, some time like that. And there was a long, long period of Chinese history which was not told, and particularly the last 150 years, which still is very difficult to, to deal with. I mean, you wouldn't expect any regime at something like the Olympics to lay out mm-hmm. all the bad things that have happened, but that is, you know, that doesn't mean that it, it, it goes away. I think the leadership and we can do kind of criminological uh, the, 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 um, surgery of the Politburo and who is with whom, and so on and so on. But certainly, I mean, I got the impression, and we've talked about this um, from the party congress just over a year ago, that Hu Jintao, although he got another five years, actually came out of that quite weak. In terms of his actual authority, you have a consensus, much more of a consensus negotiated style of leadership, which is a very healthy thing in the long term, but makes it that much more difficult, perhaps, to deal with sudden crises. I think that the leadership has handled the series of crises which have come up this year, most of them unexpected, pretty well there. I mean, there's an element, obviously, of PR in when, you know, Grandpa, when Jarboe uh, leaning down to shake victims' hands and so on and so on, and when he goes away, nothing much changes. But they've played the PR role, I think, very well, and the who-when division of labour works quite well uh, at the moment. But, really, going on to what Martin was saying at the end, I think that the economic um, uh, crisis, and it is a I mean the the scale of the response to it means that you can call it an economic crisis I think in China at the moment is uh, probably the defining uh, element certainly this year and for the next two or three years to come uh, for a couple of reasons which I'll try to deal with very um, quickly in very broad brush terms the first generation of economic reform which of course is ending this month with the anniversary of the third plenum was in a sense, and despite Tiananmen Square, despite the problems of the 90s, despite the Asian economic crisis, that was the easy time. And that now the PRC is coming face to face with the price of that kind of untrammeled growth in everything from wealth disparities to the environment, to popular protests, to how the political system deals with that. And you certainly had a a feeling early on this year that The leadership, although it wouldn't say so, and it usually doesn't say so, was allowing what we've called a Darwinian process to take place to change the economy, to move away from uh, low cost, uh, low added value, labor intensive industries, hence the toy factories were allowed to go bust in Guangdong and so on. The current, uh, and also they realized that they were too dependent on uh, fixed asset investment, infrastructure, and so on. The effect of the crisis so far has been to reverse that. To help the exporters who should be going out of business, to pump money—what is it? Five trillion over the next five years into the railways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the danger is that the leadership has reacted, and it does react in terms of, of, of popular concern, in such a way that the longer-term economic and social development of China may
0: be held back. Now, undoubtedly, the. Um Current economic crisis is of major significance. And I think it's very hard to disagree with what you have said, based on what we know so far. But the the big question, is of course what will be the future direction of this economic crisis for China? That it will be confronted with it, on that I think there is very little doubt. But what do you see as the potential for the Chinese government to handle it? And are there uh, as it were, unknown unknowns <laughs> that we there should tra- <laughs> <laughs> that we should try to deal with in, in in the broader sense. Let me let me turn to right. Atar for a second on right. that, and then yes. I'll, I'll get back to you, Jonathan. Yes. Are there things that we should be aware we, we should be aware of that are not so easy to see in the first part of the crisis with regard to China?
4: I think the development in China is going to surprise people, but not surprise because of bad outcome, but because of relatively good outcome, in the sense that. I think China will come out of the economic crisis relatively well, though it will be affected by the downturn in the international economy. If you look at the position of the Chinese economy, all the reliable forecasts say that growth rate this year would be 8.5%. Next year, very low by Chinese standards, but dramatic, by world standards, about 7%. Chinese exports Although Guangdong has suffered in terms of export of toys, Chinese exports are going to increase because the export of electronic goods are actually increasing. So of all the economy, Chinese government is in a much better position to actually undertake expansionary policy. It is not insulated from the outside world, but I think it can actually substitute domestic demand for external demand. And I think it's wrong to say that the two, 3 trillion budget is simply on railways. In fact, it's no, no. a much bro- broad-based package. There's quite a lot of expenditure foreseen on social security. So the problem of uh, building a harmonic society actually started three years ago, and the leadership is actually very serious about it. Let me say just two aspects of the Olympics which are very important. I see the Olympics as the culmination of China's open-door policy. It is, shows China's engagement with the international economy. The stadium in China and the Olympic buildings were not built by Chinese architects. They actually built by international competition. So it actually shows China's engagement with the international world. There are probably a lot of people in China who think that these should have been all designed by Chinese architects. So I think that's very important. So these are masterpieces of international architecture. So this is a message from China that is, China is no longer isolated from the world, but actually strives for the best international. The second aspect, which has been overlooked, that I was in Beijing throughout the Olympics, including the Paralympics, that was a mass event. Obviously, China has a big population. Not everybody can participate, but something like 100,000 volunteers actually participated in it. So in fact, rather than conveyed by Western press, it was a very relaxed occasion, except for the opening ceremony. I went to the Summer Olympic events. In fact, security was there, but actually rather good-natured, rather than heavy-handed contrary to the impression which is conveyed. So I think you just want to emphasize that it's wrong to say that everything was done through coercion. I think there was enthusiastic participation by ordinary people.
0: I promise I will get to the audience in a second but uh, Jonathan you wanted to come back on this didn't you? Yeah I just to so say
3: actually in the, the infrastructure the, the whole stimulus package mm-hmm. uh, health, education, welfare, culture accounts for 1% spending, and that's mainly on buildings not, and the trouble is that you've got to get people consuming in China, obviously to rebalance the economy, which means you've got to have, and you can see this coming through, at the same time the leadership is saying everything's going to be terrible, this is the worst year we've ever had as Wen Jiabao says, but you've got to get confidence going again and that's the going to be the trick for the next 18 months.
4: Yeah, except I might say so that a lot of uh, expenditure and infrastructure also goes on wages. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. wages, obviously. yeah. Yeah, so it just generate yeah. personal yeah. income.
1: Chen yeah. mm-hmm. Chen. Yeah, I would like to echo um, Arthur on two things. And First, I think one thing alone has made the Beijing Olympics worthy. Um, the single event has um, really rose such a widespread awareness of the importance of the environment uh, preservation and, and protection. I think this is a, a message you know, which has never been delivered as such to such a degree. but it has delivered surrounding the Olympic Games. And this is not just Beijing's response to the world. This is Chinese people's response to their own environment. And um, it has produced immediate effect on Beijing's environment during the Games and it will continuously produce uh, hugely positive um, impact upon China's future development. I think this is extremely important because the message is power. Awareness of this central, the central importance of this central issue. I think it will benefit China and the world in a long time to come. And that's the first thing. And secondly, I'm um, talking about, uh, I agree, you know, that is, as Arthur said, this is a, a, um international cooperation. But also, let me talk about uh, Beijing's huge spending on the games. Uh, reportedly, something like uh, uh, $44 billion. And many say, okay, this is a country which has the central, uh, the legacy of central planning, and uh, which is capable of gathering such a uh, funding to support the game. The question is how the fund the fund has been spent. You know, much of it has been spent on infrastructure, built up. You know, Beijing's subway system and also the Tianjin Beijing fast railway system, the new airport. You know, which is magnificent. This is the airport, you know, new Terminal 3 of of capital airport is is airport according to American, or maybe British standard, the airport of 22nd
0: century. Certainly British standards. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, it's important. Martin, I I know you wanted to get in on this as well, but uh, could I ask you a question uh, uh, as well about the political effects Mm. of this? Um, One of the things that has struck a lot of people was that in the lead up to the Games, the regime was not capable or not willing to carry out very significant political reform. I mean, uh, a few people, both outside the party and inside the party, had been hoping that China's opening to the outside world through the Olympics should also signal, particularly before the game started, some kind of attempt at broadening uh, political participation within China. And that has blatantly not happened. What's your sense of that?
2: Well, I, I agree. I don't think it has, it has happened. I mean, I think there's... There are two different stories here. There's the way in which um, Western discourse discusses the question of involvement, participation, and democratization, and there's the, and then the other side. The other story is actually what's been happening, and um, and I think there is a fundamental mismatch between these two things, because there is a, an over sort of overbearing Western assumption. That China should be democratic in the Western style, and I think that um, uh, this is a form of Western arrogance, actually. Uh, because um, why should we presume that China is going to be uh, end up with the same kind of democracy? I think that that, that this is most unlikely. I mean, it, although people like to put J- Japan. Classify it as a democracy. I don't think that Japan is a democracy in the Western sense either, and I think the reasons for this is histo- are historical and cultural. So, so I think that that that, that I, by that, by saying that, I don't mean that China couldn't become a lot more open and accountable. Of course, it could be could be. But you know, this is this is a country the size of a continent. You know? I mean, which continent has democracy? You know, this is a this is a this is a very complex question. Very complex question. Um, and I don't think that, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is the underestimation of how much Chinese politics has actually changed. I mean, that you know, because it's not met expectations, then nothing's happened. But that's just not true. Um, in fact, you know, one of the unsung stories of the period since 1978 is not just um, economic reform, but profound pl- political reform, which has involved, fundamentally, the reconstruction of the state. In all sorts of ways, including, uh, on at least two occasions, major reconfiguration of the relationship between the central state and the provinces, which is, you know, one of the most sensitive questions in Chinese politics. So, um, I think we just need to be—we need to wise up a bit more in the way we think and talk uh, about what. Is politically happening in China. That's a brief answer. But can I just say sure. I mean, I think there, the, the one thing I don't think we should allow to not get discussed at all is Tibet. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing that really did go wrong for China, I think, this year, in terms of public perceptions uh, outside China, particularly in the West, was its handling of Tibet and its attitude towards Tibetan autonomy and uh, uh, Tibetan uh, cultural cultural and ethnic uh, distinctiveness and here I think China um, advertised very publicly that it does not uh, recognise in the manner of other very large countries, Brazil, Indonesia United States, India uh, ethnic and cultural difference and this is going to be this is going to haunt China this problem because, uh, because it represents a way in which the Chinese experience does not um, configure with what's been happening uh, globally. And uh, therefore, I think this question will come up here. The one final point, mm-hmm. sorry. Um And that is, <coughs> on the Olympics, I, Jonathan mentioned the missing bit of history, but actually uh, I was just thinking, what would Britain do if, if uh, uh, sure. what would Britain do? And because I've got to say it, what Britain would, uh, what would Britain do if it presented its history? Well, actually, probably the greatest thing Britain's ever done, in terms of its global achievement, is having such a huge empire for such a small country. But of course, it never ever talks about it. Literally, this is this is this is a source of profound national amnesia because it cannot be honest about it. It never has been and it is not now. So this would be a great big black hole in any, uh, and is, in in the way Britain presents itself. And one of the things that really struck me about the Olympics is just a kind of cameo, a a vignette of what's been, what the longer term trends in the world is the juxtaposition of the London uh, uh, ceremony within the f- closing ceremony at the Beijing Olympics and how it presented itself and Beijing and the mood in Britain which is well we can't follow that I mean we're the rich country there's no way we can follow that that has just raised the bar to a, a level that we cannot, review. We're not, we, cannot we're, we cannot possibly afford to spend that kind of money it would be a waste um, and and, and, and one might add, we could not organise anything on this kind of scale. Oh, that's the so point we know,
0: of course. <laughs> that's a, that, that's well, a known... A known. But, that
2: but here is a very interesting question, because historically the assumption has been that the competence of the state is directly proportional to the level of development. But in fact it's quite clear that China is, in terms of inter- infrastructure, far more competent, far, far more competent than a country like Britain. Why? Now this is a very important question. I think to 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 consider. Now it's part. It, the state has not been run down in the same way as, as has happened in uh, Britain, and China, of all countries, has probably you know
0: the greatest tradition of statecraft. Thanks, Martin. Let's go to the audience for a uh, a couple of questions. Yes, over there in the centre. First, do you use the microphone, please?
5: Yes, the gentleman is in in. In blue, yeah, please. No, I, have a, I have a question for um, Professor Chen Jian. Uh, you said that the Olympics, you know, changed China for the good. Uh, my question is whether it's changed China for the good in terms of political reform. Now, as Martin rightly pointed out, in the last 10, 20 years, there's been, you know, a lot of political reform in China, and that's very commendable. But uh, I was in China this year from March till late August, and what I noticed was that people in China became very, very patriotic this year. Even in Hong Kong, people became more patriotic. Uh, you know, A, because of the earthquake and the government's response, B, because of the pride of the Olympics. And what I also, also noticed was that people in China during this period, uh, they, would, they were what some would say a, a little hypersensitive to the Western media's response to China. There was a lot of China bashing this year, whether it be you know China's handling of Tibet or even events during the Olympics, such as you know the CGI of the earthquakes or the and the question, and yeah. the question is: um, Do you believe that this patriotism in China will stagnate political reform in China? Will the government think that the people are happy with the status quo? Oh, Good. We, we, we'll take another question as well. Okay. So we have a. Anyone else?
0: Yes, please. Mm-hmm.
6: Hi, uh, my name is Joe. I'm in the double master's program with Beida and LSE. Um, My question is kind of similar to his, but I spent two years reporting on China, including the Olympics, and this is for all the panelists, including um, Professor Chen Jian. But um, there were lots of promises for increased press freedoms and um, different types of um, increased social media freedoms for both reporters and those on the ground. And I was wondering, um, in the aftermath of the Olympics, do you think that although the government has not, very much directly responded to these requests that in the long run they will be implemented. And how do you think that will improve or help or, or allow society to disintegrate?
0: Thank you. Chen why don't you start us off on this one? Okay, thank
1: you very much. Both are excellent questions. Yeah, these are really the questions we must consider. And uh, let me say, you know, so no, there's absolutely no doubt that the, the game has changed China and um, in many different aspects for the better. But this is also a very perplexing message. must sing and I always remember in the opening ceremony I think the scene I was moved the most was the young girl who was singing in her very innocent voice the praising my motherland song and this is such a grand design and also it touched the very essence of Chinese patriotism and also it delivers in such a vivid way you know you have this young girl who is singing also you have a group of young Chinese kids um, uh, representing all the different ethnic groups holding a national flag to walk through the stadium, what a kind of magnificent and extremely powerful you know scene but it turns out that the girl 's voice actually is not hers. I think this yes. is a really this is a real that really symbolizes it yes. epitomizes the message that has delivered by the games um, I believe you know I think we must believe because in order to pursue all the reforms, the, the first thing is to have the parameters to have all the parameters and, and, and standards are having awareness that is important. I think with the gain, because of gain, the awareness, especially among the Chinese and the Chinese intellectuals included. And also the top-level Chinese officials, you know, just to think about to what extent they feel the pressure of making China more competent in the political sense. You know, it's not a really, it's never possible for China to follow a Western-style, you know, democracy to establish the kind of particular institutional um, uh, design following the West. But the fundamental question is checking the balancing. You know, this is a very, very big question in Japan. In the case of Japan, there's no doubt there's a, the, the checking and the balancing. What is the very origin of power, the final origin of power? It should not be the party. It should not be the Central Committee, certainly not the Politburo. There should be some force which is above the Politburo to supervise, to supervise it, and then that force itself should be checking, checked and balanced by others. And that is a question that has repeatedly been highlighted in China. I cannot answer your question you know, directly, how this will direct, but I do believe, you know, the awareness of the particular question, and now, then before, is a huge contribution that the uh, Olympic experience has, has made uh, uh, to, to, to China. And uh, if I were Hu Jintao, you know, of course I was not, I'm not of Hu Jintao, but uh, <laughs> as a historian, we always try to study you know, Hu Jintao and what kind of questions he will have to deal with, especially in, the, in dealing with current financial crisis. You know, Arthur, you mentioned, let I mean very briefly just to respond to Arthur, you know, Chinese standard 7%. That is a problem, because if you remember, you know, another top Chinese leader, Wen Jiabao, who recently says, space of development is not just an economic issue, this is an issue concerning stability. And to read his messages, that me basically means this is a question concerning um, legitimacy, or in other words, China will have to drive this fast-going um, uh, vehicle, and um, in a very complicated, you know, street, and, a, and a, at a very high speed, and you cannot slow down. If you slow down, and that will that means the very essence of your existence will be in question. That is not a, a, an easy. Um, uh, job to do for anyone. So in this sense, uh, I'm very happy that none of us here were Hu Jintao.
0: <laughs> Jonathan, you wanted to come in I just to yeah. say briefly
1: on that.
3: I mean, in uh, interestingly, um, Hu Jintao's uh, statement of the, of the Politburo meeting at the weekend, yes. the most interesting line in that was not that China's comparative advantage might be diminishing and so on, but his his phrase that the leadership's ability to lead China through the present crisis would be quote a test of our ability to rule and it's whereas in Britain I mean this is a broad brush thing but you know Gordon Brown makes a mess of things we can have that nice Mr Cameron in or you can do as you wish there in China if this leadership, having set itself absolutely to follow the Deng Xiaoping with the harmonious society grafted onto it, if it fails to do so, you're in a regime crisis here, not a governmental crisis, and that makes it that much more serious, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah.
4: <clears throat> Could I make a statement about patriotism, that is... Every Olympic game has been patriotic. You just go and read the history of any other event. It should be a mistake to see that Chinese patriotism is necessarily the defense of existing regime. It could work separately from that. So I think that to say that we love China or we hold China dear is in no way in the present day China necessarily means complete sort of defense of the existing regime.
0: I think that's right. I mean, I wanted to dwell a little bit on the issue of Chinese nationalism, though, because I think during the Olympics, we probably got that in its most positive form. But as everyone who visits China would know, it's also it's also some very negative forms. I mean, uh, a willful forgetting about the past an inability, as we talked about, to engage with other ethnic groups. Martin um, dealt with this. Uh, also an enormous difficulty of finding a place for China within East Asia in a sense that is non-conflictual. Think about the relationship with Japan, for instance. So I wanted to turn back to the panel. I'll I'll get to the audience uh, just in a little while. But I just wanted to ask you about your reflections on that, because it's really something that has struck me over the last 10 years or so in China is this growth in this rather unreflected kind. Of nationalism that really stands in the way for a deeper understanding both of the processes that are going on within China itself but certainly in many cases for you know a meaningful uh, more profound approach to foreign affairs. I don't know who wanted to start off on that. Chen Jian. Of
1: course we both have studied this history of the Chinese Revolution and what made the Chinese Revolution such a grand event and also uh, Give it a huge uh, power to destroy you know, the, the old, and that is really the impact of Chinese revolutionary nationalism and underlying the revolutionary nationalism is it 's a very very unique Chinese victim mentality I think it 's a, it's a big and also it has made uh, the situation we are facing today more complicated the victim mentality is unique largely because it forms such a sharp, you know, it forms such a sharp contrast between the collective memory on the part of the Chinese population of the civilization's glorious past, and the the collective narrative of the nation's humiliation in modern times. Okay, and that is, at one point, it is so good for stimulating revolutionary nationalism, and then the question, of course, is where China will be placing itself when it is no longer an outsider of the international system, but become an insider. And how can this nationalism and then what is underlying it, uh, namely the victim mentality, be transformed? And this is, has caused tremendous challenges to other major actors in the world, especially those of Western background. Because whenever, like, like Sarkozy, who is meeting the Dalai Lama, And um, in in early December and the Chinese decided to postpone the um, Chinese-European summit. And um, there's criticism of China, you know, be careful because you must remember the context in which the Chinese were making such um, uh, decisions. It's not just a decision for the international community, this is first and foremost a decision for the Chinese people themselves because the contradiction here is that recently Britain recognized formerly Tibet as part of China mm-hmm. and if it's part of China and then we are so in, in, in the outside world are so eager to discuss you know in the age of globalization categories like a nation or national should no longer be taken as a, a category of primary importance and therefore sovereignty is no longer regarded as a value of such absolute weight however China is still in the huge impact of age of revolution and sovereignty is so important so the contradiction here is those who are criticizing China by criticizing China you place yourself in a standard of moral superiority to the Chinese which bring you back to the position of the old days, which many Chinese and overwhelming majority Chinese still believe are the days that China was made a humiliated member. And now China has stood up. Why should you still come to criticize us? Mm. I agree, you know, Tibet is a very complicated issue. Mm. But the great difficulty involved here in the context of Chinese nationalism is how to make this, the Tibet issue, not really regarded, especially by the Chinese, as a kind of collective international conspiracy Mm. in the context of old imperialism against China. Because after all, don't forget, not a single government in the world recognized the Tibetan exile government. Mm. Dalai Lama is a religious leader, not a political leader. Mm. If that is the case, is it true that by making it an internationalized, again, Mm-hmm. Western powers are putting themselves into a position that their predecessors in the 19th century, mm-hmm. including the days of a very small island, is ruling a very <laughs> big empire. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a dilemma. Jonathan yeah, first and that Well, as you know, on it.
3: Read my book. I'm, I'm, yes. I take a somewhat um, perhaps provocative view that the, victim, the victimisation was mainly China's own doing, rather than the, the evil foreigners. But I know that's a controversial thing. Um, I think. Well, I mean, I was, I was in China just before the Olympics, during the Tibetan uh, demonstrations on the flame, and the reaction one got again and again was not simply, "Why are these people interfering in what is an internal message?" But uh, to, to paraphrase it they're just jealous of us and they want to spoil our big occasion. There was this feeling of the nasty foreigners, can you know, they're, they're, they're doing this. But, um, having said that briefly, I think, I think you were mentioning you know, how China now plays a role with undoubtedly a, 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 a very large increase in national pride. I prefer to say that rather than nationalism. I think nationalism has a stigmatization to it. So, um, it is very interesting. And to come back again to the economic crisis, I mean, this is the moment where China should in in many ways, be playing a much bigger role. The G7 and the G8, therefore the birds, clearly. The G20 doesn't work. You need some new grouping with the EU, with the US, with Japan, with the Gulf states, and with China. But there's been absolutely no sign from Hu Jintao that he wants anything to do with this. And the emphasis is always the line, we can help the world best by helping ourselves, which may turn out to be true. But you feel, strangely enough, um, there's a slight reluctance on the part of Beijing to actually play a kind of international role which other people think it should play, but which it doesn't. And maybe
0: it's right. Well.
4: Yeah, I, I think that I just want to add, I mean, uh, adding, complementing Chen Jian's statement. I think Chinese nationalism is not a unified entity, there are different strands of it. And May the Fourth Movement was obviously a defensive posture to nationalism in, in face of threat to Chinese territory and people. The situation which is changed but still is not fully resolved is that China is no longer in an ordinary sense of term faced with foreigners threatening its territory. I mean China has been remarkably successful. So the question is really that the, the strand of defensiveness is still surfaces time to time. So in some sense what we observe some of the phenomena is really the mixture of nationalism, one strand of nationalism over other strands of nationalism. Coming to China, that it is worth remarking. That is to say, that China should intervene. Well, I, cynically, I would add that some of the worst things which happen in the world have also come out of intervention. <laughs> yeah, so, active one. active intervention is not an unalloyed good. And so, China is relatively new in international stage. China has been quite successful when it comes to state-to-state relations but not so successful when it comes to state to public relations. Because partly it's the system characteristics. The Chinese leaders are not used to justifying their actions to the general public. So they don't do very well when it comes to justifying to international public. But I think that uh, we have to say that we ask or expect China to play a leading role within a space of 20 years. So I think that from point of view of Chinese interests, and and they have their own estimation of their capacity to intervene in the world. And they are much more realistic about what they can do than what the outside world expects them to. If I may just give one
0: Yes, very, very briefly. Yeah, and also, the
1: question is comparing the expectation, you know, Jonathan, you have experienced and the world has expressed we must understand that from the perspective of Chinese leaders and many Chinese, you know, there are huge fundamental vulnerabilities on the yeah. part of yeah. China. Yeah. There are tremendous internal problems. And the most important of all, what kind of country which has climbed to the height of global position, which is still facing so profound legitimacy challenges?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Martin, on the issue of Chinese nationalism, and then I'll turn to the audience again.
2: Uh, well um I, I think this is a really big question um, but i i would um perhaps put it in a in a, in a slightly different way I mean, first of all though i think the, the reason this is so important is not in the immediate context but in the longer term context i mean what is china going to be like and yeah. I, I i don't expect china to be you, know, you, you put it you know it's it when it becomes an insider i don't think China will be an insider in the, con- in, the se- in the context of the present international system, because I, I really don't expect the present international system to survive the decline of the United States, and I think that there will be a different international system i mean you know every globally hegemonic power has spawned its own international system um, Britain being the first obvious example of the international gold standard, and so on, and institutions like the World Bank and the and the IMF are essentially American-created institutions. And so, if China's going to throw, you know, it, either it's going to be transformed from within uh, because China's got the money and the West hasn't, or or, it, or, or it'll be a bifurcated system. Um, but anyway, I mean, but those all raise very important questions about how will China behave, and I think this is a much more important important question actually than the one that generally the West gets um, troubled by which is the sort of question of poli- uh, polity and democracy and I think it is a bigger question than just the victim mentality and the, the, the century of humiliation and so on, though I do think that, that is obviously very important, but the reason it's so important for China, exceptionally important, is also because the Chinese think of themselves as and frequently refer to themselves as having you know, very long civilization um, uh, defining some of the most you know, the most greatest achievements uh, of humanity, uh, and so the Chinese, as we know, have um, had a sense of superiority, um, which is quite clear in the chinese mentality, and um, that 's what the Middle Kingdom was you know, about in, in, in certain respects, so I think that the nature its The nature of Chinese national, the term Chinese nationalism is too, is too, it's too reductive. Actually, what we're dealing with in trying to understand Chinese consciousness is a combination of nationalism in the sense of the modern nation state. But that's a recent development. That's only 100 years old. We're talking about something that is at least 2000 years old in continuous political terms. We're also talking about, about our term I would use personally, something like this, which is civilizationalism, which is you know China considering itself to be a, a civilization state and thereby defining it itself not in, primarily in terms of the last hundred years, because that's um, the topsoil mm. of a geological structure of attitudes which goes back much, much further. Now the difficulty I think is going to be when China meets the world, which is reflected it, Expressed in the term, of the problem of Tibet actually, in, as a microcosm of the problem, which is: Do the Chinese understand difference? Now, difference defines the rest of the world, but it's not really defined the Chinese experience because, even you know, 94% of the Chinese regard themselves to be Han, even though patently they come from countless different races. But because of this very long history. Coupled with an ideology over time, but mainly because of the long history, it's created a sense of one race, and it and linked to that is also a strong belief, uh, but by no means uh, uh, universal, of polygenism. You know that the the, the Chinese are a separate branch. The Japanese have the same kind of attitude. So I think that the that's a big that's a. I want to widen the terms of discussion because it seems to me those are the kind of problems that we need to to consider in this context.
0: Thanks, Martin. That's very useful. Other questions? Yeah, right at the back, over there first, and then I'll take one up there afterwards. Yeah, please. The lady in the
6: pink scarf. Hi. Uh, my name's Helen. I'm a law um, graduate. Um, about a month or so after the Olympics, um, I'm sure you all know of the um, Institute of Strategic Studies, I think there was a conference in Japan, and it was about talking about... Um, of Asia-Pacific power, and what was interesting was there was this sort of discussion ongoing about the role of um, uh, Republic of Korea and Japan um, sort of being more united as and playing a greater role in Asia-Pacific region. They didn't really talk about China, but the feeling behind it, I felt, was is a sort of concern that because of the rise of China, there could be some possibly political instability of power, supposedly, um, with um, I guess the democratic republic possibly being a concern for the Asia-Pacific region and they're not quite sure I guess the two main states not quite sure what role China would play where um, she would stand so to speak so I'm kind of interested in knowing um, do you think China has that determining sort of role in maintaining peace in Asia-Pacific even though there are ongoing tensions um, between democratic republic of Korea and Korea.
0: Thank, you. Thank you. Yes, gentlemen up there, please.
4: Yes, it's just an uh, addition to that question just asked, in terms of the larger role of China and its size in the world, not just a population being the, the majority that hasn't ruled, does the panel believe that it is unfair? Considering what an amazing uh, international success that Olympics has been, not just of public relations, but the fact that China itself ought to be given more respect considering what it has achieved so far in terms of development and its internal dynamics, not just Tibet, but also how it is going to play a new role in the world. Considering the old world order of European concentration of power, should it not be given the benefit of the doubt
0: as a majority to set the rules? Thank you. I'll take one more question. Yes, over there, please.
4: Yes, my, my, my concern is about foreign policy. Uh, after, even before the Olympics, we were seeing demonstrations and activists all over the world trying to protest against China's support for alleged support for repressive regimes, like Darfur. In Africa, we have a quarrel with Mugabe, and China is very close to, to Mugabe. In Myanmar, China is very close to that regime as well, and other regimes across the world. Now, it's being predicted in very many of these lectures that China is going to be a future power. And related to the question which has just been asked, if it becomes a future world power, what values is it going to bring on the table? And do you, what do you panelists have to tell those people who fear that it's going to introduce some kind of illiberalism?
0: Great questions. Thanks. Who, who wants to go first? Jonathan, do you have a... last
3: question? <laughs> I think China, just to take the last question, for the moment operates almost entirely on self-interest, where it's perceived self-interest, for instance, in raw materials, supplies, above all... Uh, the Burma from a strategic point of view and I think that uh, that will continue for some time simply because uh, it, it's, a, it's a, in, a, in a dynamic there plus the idea which for obvious reasons Tibet which we've mentioned that you have to hold up non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries as a, a sacred uh, thing I think in the regional um, uh, context uh, you know, if there is a serious decline in American uh, power and influence military power in East Asia you're going to see a very interesting equation emerging there which nobody knows how to deal with. China ever since Deng Xiaoping, ever since 78 has no interest whatsoever in there being wars or conflicts I mean, to keep the whole economic thing going and so on, you need a generally benign international uh, context, and that will be particularly so in Asia as Asian trade becomes, you can see all the graphs, becomes more and more important compared with trade uh, with the United States. Um, There's interesting, there's a summit, Hu Jintao, the Koreans and the Japanese, I think next week, which will be interesting to see whether something in the current context comes out of that. But I think one of the big problems, and probably Martin can say more, having been knowing more much about it than I do, is simply Japan doesn't know what to do. Japan is still looking for a role equivalent to being the world's second biggest economy and uh, has very little idea there. If I could just track that with literally one sentence to the lady who asked about uh, news, uh, news and information, having worked in that area for most of my life, um, I think there will always informa- I mean, the propaganda department will still say this, that control of information in the end is part of political power And I remember Mr. Ding, the Politburo member, uh, this is going now back eight, nine years, uh, saying to me once that as long as the Communist Party remained in power, independent media, as understood, let's say, elsewhere, would not be allowed in China because this was an essential political tool. On the other hand, he said, you foreign journalists, and that included the South China Morning Post, which I was editing at the time, you overrate your importance. You don't matter to us. And it's quite a good thing to allow you a certain amount of independence because we can point to this as a sign that well, we're much more liberal than other people think. If, on the other hand, you were writing in Chinese, then that would be a problem.
0: Altair.
4: Yeah, I think l- let me r- repeat a truism that is everybody acts in self-interest. Is actually an illusion to think that Ch- while China acts in self-interest, other countries act on both as a moral standard. It is true that other countries use moral arguments, but that can also be a cloak for self-interest. The second thing which is worth pointing out is that China is also a learning curve. It's, you know, China's relations with Zimbabwe or Myanmar or Darfur are not static. And in fact, there has been perceptible change over the last few months. So I think we take it for too granted that Chinese position is once and all fixed forever. In fact, in foreign policy, there are relative novices especially in Africa and some other countries, and they are learning like anybody else
0: mm. but Chen Jian don't you think that I mean there is a there's a rather steep learning curve here that China will have to conform to if you know, it is going to play the role that it wants for the um, next decade you know the China um Chinese are
1: excellent learners. There's no doubt about this. Just look at the world. You know, LSE. How many Chinese students? Excellent students. And um, it's um, and also they happen also to be very good professors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the question is what you may be able to learn, and what you are willing to learn. But also uh, in what circumstances, in what conditions that will put you in a learning position. And again. In, in terms of China's international role and there, we must understand, you know, uh, the Chinese leaders and also anyone who are studying China must understand that China itself is a world. That was true in the past, that is still true today because there are huge domestic problems. And uh, in terms of, uh, you know, to talk about uh, Martin's earlier statement about the uh, changing international system, I think uh, you know, in the foreseeable future, uh, probably in my lifetime, we will still be seeing the United States riding the rules because you know, for in, in, in there is no alternative. And uh, to talk about, um, 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 let me let me very quickly talk about uh, the question of Zimbabwe, you know, uh, Darfur, and uh, Myanmar, uh, Burma. Um, it's not just self-interest. There's also moral consideration and also there's the question what is an alternative. I strongly, I have studied these questions simply because they have been asked so many times. The Chinese government of Beijing did not support Myanmar simply because of the, the nature of the regime. Certainly Beijing did not support Mugabe because of what he now has changed to become. But there is a history there. You know, in terms of Burma, you know, for many, um, this is a, a long history, and especially if you remember 1989, um, Yangon really is almost the only government which so strongly supported Beijing's policy. Therefore, not just for self-interest consideration, but also for very old Chinese principle. You know, you cannot give up your old friends. And Jonathan, you have written a book called uh, "The Generalissimo Who Lost China," and um, you know he lost China, and the United States still did not abandon him. You see yeah, this, no, no, no. right? You know that's the same for, for China for Mugabe. Mugabe was a hero. Mugabe was the person in the decolonization process. And the the, the the old relationship between Mugabe and and Beijing was not established because of what Mugabe now becomes, uh, has become, but because of that long history, how can you ask Beijing to suddenly change simply and especially because there is no alternative? If I believe the Burmese people themselves and especially the Zimbabwe people themselves have come have worked out alternative, look at Beijing. Beijing would not be the barrier. That is so clear. And then Darfur. I'm greatly troubled by this international concentration of the Darfur problem on China. China is not a source of Darfur. Darfur is, a, the, the Darfur problem is a combination of legacy Western colonialism, the changing environment, internal problems, all combines it to make the Darfur problem. And actually, if there are international actors who should be a responsibility for Darfur, and then it should not be China. Okay, there is China is blamed for have for have, having maintained good relationship with government uh, with Sudanese government. But you know, let me put it things this way: those actors who are involved in the Darfur affair, the others are really not less vicious than the government in Sudan. And after all, I, I, I taught this to the, uh, my, my, my friend, Nicole um, uh, Christopher, about um, genocide. Is it Darfur really a genocide? You think about this. And um, I think uh, uh, people have uh, you know, raised the question of the politics of naming. And uh, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, important and a big question to make it clear to identify the Chinese you know, responsibility here. Mm. And I agree, Arthur, China has been changing. Especially, you know, the, the, the standard Chinese attitude on this issue, which is not already so much in the international community, is that uh, let us create the conditions for all the actors involved to try to solve this problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Martin, not, I, not, I, 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 hang on, Arthur, just one second. I want to <laughs> get to, to Martin on this. but. I mean, certainly it shows, Martin, a, a, a great lack of flexibility on this side of Chinese foreign policy. I and mean, we keep coming back to that problem. Obviously, as Chen Jian says, I mean, there are reasons that explain China's policy, for instance, with regard to Zimbabwe or with regard to, to Myanmar. But obviously there is, in terms of the situation that China is facing now, a certain lack of flexibility that becomes a hindrance for Chinese foreign policy, for the people actually carrying it out.
2: Maybe i may I, mean, I, I, I rather sympathise with what you said about um, and Myanmar and, and Darfur and so on. I mean, the the dreadful Western hypocrisy, especially European hypocrisy, about Africa. I mean, if anyone is responsible for the mess that uh, so many African countries find themselves in, it is it is you know the great colonisers, Britain and, and France, um, even. Um, if you've seen the latest stuff about Rwanda, the French complicity in the massacre there. And now in Congo. And yeah, so I, I well, the Congo is probably the worst example of yes, all uh, yes. in Belgium Africa.
1: And, um,
2: but you know, the mess that Zimbabwe is in, you know, has so much to do with the way the British handle decolonization. And um, so so I think that to blame China for these, it, it doesn't mean that China's role, uh, the, 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 the hand it's playing, is the best one or the right one. But t- to start pointing the finger at China is um you know to complete I, I think to get everything out of perspective really. Um the maybe they maybe they can be uh more flexible maybe they maybe they should be. I mean I think on Delpho they probably could because actually the the, the role they played on Delpho is not you know I mean they they, they they have played an important role in the peacekeeping and so on. So um But the general point that you made, I think both of you made, was I I just wanted to say something which is a very interesting new coloration of, you know, the global polity is that the rise of China to a position of great prominence and ultimately now the second power in, in many ways and ultimately probably the major power, you know, represents a huge change in global politics because... Ever since the Industrial Revolution started at the late 18th century in Britain, international politics has been dominated by the rich countries, the developed developed countries which were also the rich countries. GDP coincided with a large GDP per head. And these were also the countries that colonised the rest of the world, Japan included, otherwise it was the West. Now, the rise of China marks such a fundamental change in that situation because, for the first time, one of those countries that was not colonized in the way that India was, but partially colonized nonetheless, and through that 200 year period was also a poor country, is actually going to be one of the global big hitters. And for the first time, one of the global big hitters will be from the colonized world, not from the colonial, the colonizing. And it will not simply, for the next 20, well, probably 50 years, be simply a developed country. It will also be a developing country. We've never had a situation like that before, which combines uh, those two characteristics. The other point I wanted to make was concerning um, your point about Asia-Pacific and so on. Because I think that if there is one region which tells us more than any other region in the world about the rise of China, how quickly it's happening and what its impact is, is likely to be. It is East Asia, because if you want to, if we want to understand and feel it, you, can, you know, you, we can talk about it here in terms of imports and so on. But actually, it's East Asia. That is, <coughs> there's been such a profound reconfiguration of that region in not much more than a decade. China has emerged for most of those countries, always rapidly emerging, as the biggest export market for virtually all of them, including Japan, overtaking the United States. Taiwan, which was very little, is now 40% uh, of, um, of its exports go to China. So, now, there, is a, there was a proposition, essentially, which was very popular 10 or 15 years ago in international relations circles, that basically said uh, that the rise of China will create instability, because what will happen is other countries will hedge against China now i 'm rather taken by the argument of david Kang actually, which is which is the opposite argument, which is that actually the rise of China will create will not necessarily create instability, and so far, the evidence is that it 's actually led to a more stable situation. There were more wars more wars in East Asia during the Cold War than there have been since the end of the Cold War and the rise of China and The reason is because, in a sense, East Asia is returning to something like what it used to be, namely some some elements, of the, some echoes of the tributary system, which was in many ways a very stable system and it was based on two things essentially. One, the overwhelming strength of China compared with everyone else and secondly, an acceptance, mutual acceptance that Chinese, Chinese civilization Chinese was superior to all others. Um, now, I think that uh, what, we're, what we've witnessed in East Asia actually is the, the rapid rise of China economically, politically, culturally and so on and the rapid decline of the United States um, and this has created uh, I mean the only two countries really have hedged against China in this situation. One has been Taiwan but Taiwan is clearly going through a rethink I mean how long that will last and where it will go who knows But and secondly Japan. But Japan as Jonathan said Japan is in difficulties in relationship to China because basically with the rise of China if it continues with its growth rate then there's one maxim, time is always on China's side. Mm. And Japan will Japan will have to rethink. It finds it so difficult because ever since 1868, it has rejected Asia as inferior and wanted to be, regard itself as Western. So it finds it very, very difficult to handle a situation where the continent it rejected, it now has to engage with on terms which are not simply mm. that of the, the rapacious colonizer and aggressor. So I think that East Asia is mm. absolutely fascinating in this context.
0: Mm. Thanks, Martin. Very brief comment from Atar and then I'll turn to the audience. Yeah, I
4: just want to make a brief comment, just inject a sense of comparison. I think that Tibet issue is Excellent. important and the rights of national minorities important. But the world actually has treated national minorities Excellent. in a terrible way, not just in China, but also in other countries. Witness what has happened in Indonesia and Kurdistan. Kurdish national minority and a number of other cases you can take. So I think it's wrong just to single out Tibet as if it's a a singly Chinese problem of actually dealing with national minorities. Well, it is a sad thing to say, but the world actually does not accept the rights of national minorities that easily. Second is ranking of villains, such as the Sudan. It's well worth pointing out for comparison that Saudi Arabia is not a shining example of democracy and a good government. It's a country where most of the wealth is actually used by one family or extended family. It has all the attributes of a very repressive society, treats women badly, but there is a conspiracy of silence about Saudi Arabia. We single out Sudan because Sudan is weak and, and also is friended by China. But nobody actually points the finger of criticism towards Saudi Arabia, mm. even though in, in all the human rights terms, it's actually as great a violator as anybody else. Mm.
0: Questions? Yes, back there first, in the green jumper, yeah.
6: To go back to the original question, the very first question that was asked, um, has China changed because of the Olympics? Um, there's no doubt that China sort of mer- emerges from the Olympics uh, with a great PR record, but in my mind, that isn't really the important question. The important question has is has anything really changed and so my question to you is the major structural factors that are governing China's rise and the rest of the world's response to that rise, namely trade, human rights, military expansionism, have those really changed at all, and if not, aren't we really Kind of over exaggerating the impact of the Olympics.
0: A good summing up question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one at the very back over there, lady in black there, yeah.
6: Uh, yeah, it links with singling out and Western hypocrisy is why everybody knows about Tibet, but nobody's speaking about Xinjiang. I mean, most people in Western Europe, I think, don't even know where Xinjiang is. How do we pick up these problems and why? I mean, there is also some sort of hypocrisy and. Uh, loss of memory or how much information
0: do we really know about China yeah. I want to turn to the, audio, to the um, panel now but could I just throw in one question of my own which we haven't had a chance to address and that is the issue of the new American administration that's coming in and how that would look from a Chinese leadership point of view and how they would see this For <laughs> yes, we we always do more roundtables. We we have no lack of them. No, okay, I think this okay. has been this has been a wonderful invitation to at least four more that I can think of. Change.
1: Yeah. May I? Yes. What has changed? Games are <laughs> games, and then um, you try to uh, identify specific and exact changes. It's a you know you may say that is because of games. That is because of many other you know um, uh, events. And the games must be that's why it must be put into the context in which, you know, China has been changed and in many senses. And I mentioned earlier, why do people I think Arthur mentioned the Paralympics. Olympics. The world has paid so little attention to it, but the, the Chinese were so enthusiastic about it. Environmental, you know, thinking about how important it is for a country of the size of China and also for the size economy which is developing and which has produced such carbon effect on the global environment and how that has worked, especially that is particularly because of the Olympics. And then the other issues are more complicated issues. They will not be so easily changed substantially simply because of games. However, just think about that. If the game turns out to be a failure, what kind of impact it will have produced on China's change? Let me also further talk about highlighted two brief issues because it has been mentioned but it has not been really discussed in, in, in a, in, in a head on way Taiwan and Tibet and also Xinjiang. Xinjiang, okay, it's a non issue in these circumstances. It's a completely Chinese issue and largely because it has so much been integrated into China. And I, I think, you know, there are people who try to emphasize the issue and unfortunately many of whom are terrorists. That is, a, that is a not a good news for the people who are favoring minority rights. But Taiwan issue, if there's one area in the Asian Pacific region which is possible to become a hot spot again and with the prospect of triggering military confrontation, it's still, it is still Taiwan. That is, a, if you read you know, the Chinese government's recent statement, again they emphasize that both Tibet and Taiwan belong to China's core interests. In other words, these are areas where other people cannot really touch. Fortunately, in Taiwan, currently, the current regime in Taiwan has produced the circumstances in which that allowed, you know, China and Taiwan to have dialogue Tibet. I basically, I very much agree with what you have said, but the question is, what is the way out? You know, that's uh, what happened in March, it's from a Chinese perspective, is a coup de grace, which was really made by young Tibetan militants beyond the control of the Dalai Lama. But the Dalai Lama was placed into a very difficult situation. On the one hand, he certainly disagreed with what had happened. But on the other hand, what can he do? That's his own um, uh, ethnical and uh, and the religious people, and so what a, the, if there's one thing that is really troublesome from from my perspective is that the Tibet issue has back backfired. Okay. it has really turned into a direction that is not in anyone who wants that the best interest of China, Chinese people, Han Chinese people, and the Tibetan Chinese people to be served. Mm-hmm. That is the Dalai Lama become demonized and he was uh, marginalized in the uh, process of this dialogue and then the agenda of the dialogue if you read the recent mm. you know, records and you find it uh, was pushed back to basically the, uh, the, um, um, the, 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 the time when the middle way line has been adopted mm. as if the middle mm. way line is, um, is not the, the question is not to blame China, to criticize China mm. Or to, 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 to say, we sympathize with Dalai right. Lama. It's a, it's a, it can be done and should be done. The question is, what is the way out? Mm. You know, To meet the Dalai Lama is not the
0: solution, actually. And in that connection, with regard to the incoming U.S. administration, any Obamania in, in Beijing that you can see? Because a lot of Obama's advisors, of course, during the election campaign have been talking very loudly about Tibet and about the Tibetan issue. What do you see as the... Um, the the, the Chinese reaction to the incoming administration? You
1: know, I think China is welcoming Obama, and Chinese, especially. You know, Chinese intellectuals, as of everywhere in the world, are so enthusiastic about uh, Obama coming to uh, the White House, but with worries. Mm -hmm. And then, if you read the Chinese reactions, you see there's so many observations that Obama will not change the basic tone of, um, of a U.S. policy toward China. And Thomas Christensen, you know, a friend of us and the former U.S. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State and um, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and advised Obama administration that you may change every aspect of Bush administration's policy but not the China policy. And uh, I believe Obama is not going to change the basic basic tone of Chinese, the basic line of China policy. China, policy. Well,
0: China
3: has always been, since '72, much happier with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it doesn't like Democrats. I mean, Mao. You know, you can you can count on right wingers, but not on uh, Western liberals. Uh, and that may still be the case. I mean, the only I think the only Obama thing is: Did he mean it when he started talking about offshoring American jobs, currency manipulation? The IMF has stopped its investigation into currency manipulation. Interestingly, at the moment. But if that is relaunched, you would get... And um, I mean, the first question on the Olympics there's whatever you call it PR, spin, national pride, and so on. Obviously, there was a change there, but otherwise, it's made absolutely no difference. I mean, in economic terms, the Olympics were a flea bite compared with China's GDP. Uh, Politically, we saw what happened with the famous uh, protest sites and uh, the headline, wonderful headline in China Daily protests. Sorry, what was it? 78 requests, colon, no protests, because it had been agreed that they should not be held. The clampdown on the internet uh, during, the, uh, during and after the Olympics. I mean, nothing is going to change from that point of view or has changed. Xinjiang, I think the trouble with the Uyghurs is they haven't got a Dalai Lama. You know, that they haven't got somebody to, to be a world ambassador. And I wouldn't say they were all terrorists, the, the, no, the Xinjiang people. all of them. Outstanding no, no, no. voices. No, no, no. I mean, the, the way the Chinese invented, the, for instance, the, the police station uh, attack. Uh, in a ramshy. I mean, that was you know. That's invented. Yeah, it was. It was a fight between two police two police forces. It's been absolutely documented. No, well that's that's no. beyond my. Oh yes, is. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> And finally, on Taiwan. I mean, I think the the question there. and I'm sorry to keep coming back to it. Is uh, is whether the economy can hand, uh, stand up, and it's practically falling to zero growth at the moment, it's so export-dependent and that could get Ma into trouble at which case does the DPP finding a new leader who's not in jail um, (laughs) suddenly (laughs) relaunch itself Uh, you know Taiwanese democracy seemed pretty stable and having gone through the DPP back to the KMT, there's a danger obviously that it may be more fragile than we think
0: I also on the, on the Taiwan issue because obviously the current economic crisis on Taiwan is going to impact in a major way on uh, relationship between the mainland and Taiwan.
4: Yeah, but we should also remember that uh, China, mainland China is Taiwan's by far the largest market, so there is yeah. also a question yeah. of economic right. interest. Right. So it means that compared to other parts of the world, Taiwan and mainland China have drawn each other very closely. There are huge investment links and trade links I come back to the question of how do we answer the question of the impact of the Olympics on freedom in China or the political development. I would argue that it it actually is a misperceived question, misplaced question, because it grossly simplifies the forces which lead to political changes in any country. So an event such as Olympics cannot cannot change political, political reality in the sense that political reality changes out of much more complex forces. All we can say and give an honest answer, the honest answer is what is the definite impact of the Olympics on political development. They say that you cannot say it with any certainty. It's, you are in actually realm of speculation. But what we can say is that overall the opening of China to the outside world has contributed to freedom, personal personal freedom in China and a great deal of political relaxation. So it's in that vein that I would say that Olympics have contributed to the, the political development in China. To be more definite than that one is not being honest.
0: Martin.
2: Yeah, I agree with that so I won't um, continue yes. with the point. Um, just on your question about um, uh, the impact of Obama. Well I would say that um, the first thing is what, what what I think will be more much more important for China than, than a new American presidency is is if this is really a global depression then the consequences of that are going to be much more far reaching but at the moment obviously uh, unknowable Uh, that said I think that um, well it all depends on um, I think on the stability for the Chinese, the stability of Sino-American relations and the willingness of the Americans to the new administration to broadly carry on with the policy as it has been operated for a long time now. Um, It's actually, although there's been a lot of convulsion around it, it's been a remarkably stable uh, picture, really, ever since in a way, you know, Nixon and Kissinger. uh, Kissinger uh, Kissinger asked Chairman Lai about his view on the French Revolution. Um, The the question is, um, I mean, the Democrats are more um, liable to favour forms of protection partly because of trade union influence and so on than the Republicans and uh, this would be I think a major fear the, the biggest single fear of the Chinese would be the, 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 the growth of protectionism in America which could happen in a very well, then, depressive yeah. situation um, and then I think that that basic relationship begins to change in a, in a, very, in a very fundamental way with implications which Uh, are unclear. Um, I mean, there is something else I want to say about Obama, actually, and that is that um, it is, um, I mean, I'm not sure that everyone is so excited about Obama in East Asia. I haven't haven't traveled there recently. But um, a a rather well-known Chinese writer, and Chris Hughes drew my attention to this, um, on the visit of Condoleezza Rice, 18 months ago to China, remarked, did an analysis of the blogs and said that what was so disturbing was how many of the contributions were, were racist towards Condoleezza Rice. And one of the unspoken truths of East Asia, Northeast Asia, really, rather than Southeast Asia, or different in Southeast Asia, is the extent to which there's a racist discourse. Um, and not an anti-racist discourse, um, and uh, uh, this is something that uh, is not commented on very much. But I think that um, that this is uh, this is th- this. Now, this uh, could uh, have all kinds of ramifications. But one of them might be that actually it helps to tackle this problem um, because Obama is a new and. A new face, a new, a new uh, uh, has a new identity, uh, and that that's one thing. The other thing I want to say finally is that it's going to be very interesting the extent to which Obama, um, who reaches out after a period of American uh, um, uh, sort of isolation from the developing world, the extent to which the United States under Obama has a new a new a new appeal, and uh, That, I think, I mean, uh, um, I saw Professor Shi Yi Hong said the other day, you know, that this is quite a new challenge for for China uh, because um, it will have to compete in a way that during the Bush period, uh, increasingly it didn't have to compete because uh, Bush had thrown in the towel in terms of soft power.
0: We are going to do several more roundtables like this in, uh, in LSE Ideas over the coming two terms. So do stay posted and do, do spread the word around. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to chair this panel tonight. It's been informative, it's been thought-provoking, and it's been very, very useful. I want to thank Martin Jakes, Chen Jen, Johnson Fenby, Atta Sen, very, very much, and thanks to the audience.